Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology, and everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. Hi, I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test, and I'm joined by the host of the Dutch Podcast, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton. Coming up on this episode, we are still celebrating the 10 years of Dutch live from A4M here in Las Vegas. We have some very special guests and some fun conversations planned, and we're giving away a car, a cortisol awakening response kit that is, plus the SOS or Stages of Stress program from Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center with our very special guest, former medical director and SOS clinical expert, the one and only, Dr. Carrie Jones. Hello. We'll also do a 2022 research review with Mark Newman and talk about some new and exciting Dutch research publications and now onto the show. But first, let me introduce you to our guest, Dr. Carrie Jones. She's a naturopathic physician who is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology and a master's in public health, having over 17 years in the field of functional and integrative medicine. As a former adjunct faculty for the National University of Natural Medicine, she has taught courses in both gynecology and advanced endocrinology. She was the medical director for two very large integrative clinics in Portland, Oregon, and the medical director for Precision Analytical, creators of the Dutch test for almost nine years. She's the clinical expert for the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center, serving as the SOS Stress Recovery Program expert, currently... She is the head of medical education at Rupa Health. Welcome to the show, my friends. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm psyched to be here. We're so happy to have you. And I mean, I just want to start by saying you are a big part of the first 10 years yeah. at Dutch. So it's awesome to have you and have you be a part of the podcast today. Um, so you really served as the clinical face of Dutch. You enlightened us with your stories, with your crowns. <laughs> with your Instagram. I mean, you provided so much education to practitioners and I think really got everyone excited about taking a broader look at hormone metabolism. So first of all, thank you. <laughs> I've learned a lot from you personally, and I know I speak for a lot of practitioners out there who would say the same. And you also made the complexity of the steroid pathway a lot of fun. <laughs> so thanks for that. It helps with crowns. So tell me, what are some of your favorite memories of being at Dutch and of those kind of first 10 years getting started? Oh my goodness. So when Dutch started out, I was in practice in a large integrative clinic and I knew who Mark was and Mark came to the practice and he said, I have this new dried urine test. Are you interested in trying it? I said, yes. And after the fact, I emailed him and I said, you sound like you need some help. And he said, yeah, but I can't pay you. So <laughs> we went from unpaid volunteer work all the way up through the years to see it grow to as many employees, the space, the, the um, analytes on the test, the team, like every, to see this today, the podcast live at A4M has been just really amazing to watch the teeny tiny, like share an office space, <laughs> meet them at a coffee shop to this is just epic. I mean, you just, it just makes me so happy and my heart warm. Yeah. What are some of those big changes that you've seen throughout the years? Are there like turning points or like key things that you'll just never forget? So we know now that, you know, metabolism, metabolites, metabolomics is now a key word. We're seeing it in clinics. We're seeing it in conferences. We're seeing it in papers. And really precision analytical was in the forefront of that, especially around estrogen metabolism. 
we knew about estrogen metabolism, the 216 ratio we've been talked about and estrogen breakdown, but really until Dutch came on the scene and really started educating around the importance of estrogen metabolism, that really, I feel, just kick off the, the whole metabolomics conversation and make practitioners realize like, oh my gosh, my actual hormone levels are important, but where do they go? How does my testosterone get broken down? How does my cortisol get broken down? Where does my estrogen go? And that has been super key to watch over 10 years. And we can do something about it. I know that is really cool. I mean, it's precision made a huge impact taking it from something that was academic yes. to something that could actually be clinically applied. Yes. I, you know, when you put it like that, it is, it's like such a big impact to the industry as a whole to yeah. be able to make sense of how something like that is actually at play in a patient's case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're talking things like worst case scenario, cancer, but even the progression up into cancer or estrogen related uh, conditions, PCOS, you know, estrogen versus progesterone, somebody with really heavy periods, fibroids, et cetera, endometriosis. And we could see, take that whole Dutch picture and look at it and go, this is modifiable. We can do something about this. Oh, here's where your risk is the worst. Let's change some things in your lifestyle, in your diet with supplements use the genetics to our advantage. And it, it's just amazing to see outcomes. Well, and I think those things are what you brought to the table that you mentioned academic is it, it remained academic, um, which was okay for some early adopters like Carrie. Um, and I think she really did a fabulous job of taking the academics of numbers on a page uh, and turning them into treatable solutions and really mm -hmm. educating our clients on what you can actually do with this thing to to change someone's life for the better. Yeah, numbers on a page to a bathtub, right? I mean, to a that's, bathtub, that's my what, bathtub analogy. But a lot of people Absolutely. like know and have, have been able to use that in practice to explain that to idiots like me who, <laughs> who really are just pretty faces. I'm not a doctor, but I can understand estrogen metabolism because mm -hmm. you you took that and you broke it down in a way that made sense. So right. That's a big help to, to us, but also the industry as a whole. So. Yeah. Can we also just take a second to gush on the clinical team that you helped to oh, build? My clinical team, my former clinical team. I mean, first of all, what a bunch of nerds. <laughs> in a good way. For and sure. I say that in the best way possible. <laughs> it is like feeling like home to be able to get excited about talking about hormones mm -hmm. so in depth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that team is fantastic. It's amazing. It started out with Mark. And then Mark gave it to me. And then I said I needed help. And so we hired Dr. Rice. And then it just grew and grew and grew to this amazing, incredible team. And even to this day, um, people, practitioners will stop me or they will say, I, you know, I still talk to the clinical team. I still, you know, I talked to this doctor. I talked to this doctor. Like, they're just the best. I'm like, they are the best. They are the best. Yeah, they are the best. I mean, I learn, we learn from each other all the time. And it's fun because if you ask the team, like, what do you like about being here? They're like, we like each other. Yeah. It's like a mutual admiration society because everyone's yes. up leveling and we all have like a different kind of nuance of what we understand the yeah. best that gets shared. And yeah. that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I know our practitioners adore them. All the time. The yeah. best feedback. I get the best feedback to this day. So I want to shift gears to stress a little bit. That's another reason why you're here with yes. us today. Um, you helped with creation of the Stages of Stress program. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? What does that mean, the Stages of Stress? Oh, my gosh. Well, we all know that stress is an absolute epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. And so practitioners knew that stress is an issue. I'd have a lot of practitioners say, I know cortisol is an issue. I know stress is an issue. But I don't know how to how to work with this? How do I help them 
identify the key areas that are impacting their stress, whether it's circadian rhythm or blood sugar dysregulations or toxins, et cetera. And I, and I don't understand, I don't have a plan or a program. I don't know what adaptogens to use or brain support to use. And so the SOS program came in and said, we have a plan. Like, research-based, here are the things that affect stress the most, and they're modifiable, and here's the order you go in, and here's the support and the education you need to really help your patients get better. And so SOS, because it, I, and especially now I feel people are like throwing up the white flag. I am oh so gosh, stressed yeah. out. And, and the SOS program by uh, or LMRC is just really come in so you can lower the flag and have actionable solutions. So yeah, this is available through Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center. Can yes. you tell us a little bit more about like what are the resources that are available? Oh, you can't even believe. So we have everything from handouts, quizzes, guidebooks, um, pamphlets for your patient. So you can put it out in the waiting room if you still have a brick and mortar clinic to talk about stress. There's a whole coaching program, master class that they can, they can be a part of to like keep them accountable all the way up to even marketing support. So if you're talking, you know, like I want to get into webinars as a clinic, I need to understand how to do my social media around what do I talk about with SOS and stress? Mm -hmm. uh, they have the support for that. And so it's really one, literally one-stop shopping in a box to give them the resources in their clinic to make it easy. And in the end, their, their patients are like, this is wonderful. I feel so much better. I understand it now. I've got my handouts with the graphics on it. I've got my book. I, you know, like I know what I'm doing and in the steps I need to take, and the practitioner feels the same way. That's great, and it's. I will say, stress is like such a difficult thing to yeah. address. You know, it's like you tell the people, just tell your patients, just like quit your job or just right. be less stressed right. out. Be less stressed. Don't have kids. Just yeah, don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> Undo the decisions you've made for the last ten years of your life. You know? <laughs> but it's really hard. So it's great that these resources are, are available because yeah. I think. From my experience talking with practitioners, it's an area that we struggle mm -hmm. to help people with giving right. concrete guidance. Like nutrition, you can put someone on a meal plan. Right. But I think actually we as clinicians probably struggle with stress as a lifestyle piece more than any other lifestyle piece. You can yes. work out, you can eat well, but stress even, can be hard to address. I've even had practitioners who are going through the SOS program and they're rec it's like looking in a mirror. You know, they're going through the checklist with their patient, the quizzes. And they're like, oh, no, like this. Oh, no, <laughs> I failed it myself. Or they're going through the four pillars of stress and they're like, oh, I, I, that's me. I have really bad circadian dis uh, rhythm dysregulation. Like my blood sugar, too, is a mess. Not realizing that we are patients ourselves just as much as we're practitioners. Yeah. Well, I will put the links to this information in the show notes so that people can learn more and access these resources. And all you practitioners out there who are listening... Give it a try yourself. You probably need it. Take a look. And I'm sure yes. you're probably going to find that there's some things in there that you should be working on too. Yeah. And I promise I will commit to doing the same. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the car and stress and all of that, we're actually doing a giveaway and it's time for that giveaway right now. So <gasps> if you give me a, uh, a drum roll, please. Do we have one of those little? No, we don't. We don't have a drum roll. It's okay. <laughs> Everybody around us can give us a drum roll. All right. Here, here it is. The winner is, we pulled it from a random generator, Kristen DeAngelis. We're going to be sending you both a cortisol awakening response of Yay, our car. Kristen. And we're also going to be giving you the SOS program from LMRC. So, Kristen DeAngelis, you won. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carrie, for, uh, for joining us on the show today. It was wonderful to have you. 
Thank you to LMR, LMRC for donating the SOS program. We love you guys over there. Uh, and now we're going to start talking about a new thing that Dr. Yes. Sweden has been creating with, with Mark called Dutch Trust. So on to you. Definitely. So as you know, I started with Dutch this last summer. One reason that I've been a really loyal customer and like really excited truly to join the team is the utter commitment and credibility, you know, commitment to excellence that they brought to the field over the last 10 years. You know, Mark, you're an incredibly committed scientist. I knew that because I've seen you tell people over and over again, don't use us for that. Don't use us for that. You shouldn't test that in urine. And, you know, not a lot of company owners would steer people away. And I mean, it just goes, it speaks to, you know, how openly you tell customers when not to use a Dutch test. And um, of course, being new, I've had a million questions for you about the down and dirty details of testing and you've been able to answer every single one. Yeah, well, that's been a commitment of ours since the beginning. I think if you were looking for a transition point from SOS and stress, you know, kudos to, to Ortho and that team in terms of, you know, that topic is one that's evolved a lot, right? We used to talk about stage one, stage two, stage three, adrenal fatigue. And when you get the problem diagnosed wrong, then the solutions you have aren't right either. And that's why I think you can have more confidence in the, in the solutions you're sending people because there's integrity at the beginning of the search for the problem. Um, and that whole evolution is a little bit of a parallel, I think, to the evolution that we've seen in on the testing side of things of just trying to be really honest and transparent with the answers to those questions of what is the best tool for you know this particular situation. And of course, the reason we built the Dutch test is to be a better tool for the scenarios in which it works well. Um, and we've just had a really strong commitment from the beginning to just sort of lay bare for people where this tool works really well, where it's not the solution. And in those cases, then what is the solution? And even trying to find those solutions to where laboratory testing isn't always leverageable to move you forward. And in those situations, you know, doctors are better off to know like, okay, put your money back in your pocket in that case and spend it on something that's yeah. actually useful for that particular patient. And I think in doing that, then we've built, I think a reputation where people trust the things that we say and we continue to be you know, committed to that model of really making sure that the claims that, that we base what we do on, if they're, if they're provable, then that we're also investing in investigating those things. Um, and, and you have to hold those convictions with a little bit of an open hand because when the data comes and contradicts your, your hypothesis, you, either you pivot or you die. Yeah, um, so. that's meaningful because you pivoted. Like For in sure. a major area when it comes to sex hormones and testing, like you made a major paradigm pivot. And I know that we can be a little bit dogmatic sometimes and really hold tight to what we believe to be true even in the face of evidence that we are looking at that might contradict it. It can be hard to let go what we believe. And that's actually, I mean, I'll never forget the time that I asked you, like, okay, as I toured the lab, I think I said, well, we have all the equipment to evaluate saliva. There's a massive market opportunity. Like, it's great that we do urine hormones, but a lot of people don't want to do urine. They want to do saliva hormones. Why aren't you doing that? It's like, you could just turn on those methods and you very quickly just said, I don't trust the data, you know, and I'm not gonna give practitioners information that I don't think will lead them to make the right conclusions for their patients. And it, it really resonated with me because that's like one thing that Dutch has become so known for is trust. Like I think even when people, there's a gap in understanding, they trust the integrity of the business. They trust that 
you know, you're going to leverage your expertise and the team will leverage their expertise to give the right answers and not mislead people. I mean, that's rare. Yeah. Well, I think it's just, you know, been our sort of philosophical commitment from the beginning is to find the best solution to us to a problem. And sometimes those solutions already exist and they're in that sort of commodity realm of, you know, you, you can do a serum test for this or that and find enough answers to a particular problem. Uh, you know, then in some cases, by all means, pursue that. And, yeah. and then what's left for us are those situations where what we do is a really good answer. And fortunately for us, that's not that's not a short list. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of situations where what we do really uh, answers well a lot of the clinical questions that you see in someone who's got some sort of hormone dysfunction or is trying to monitor, you know, a particular type of therapy um, or whatever. So we've just remained committed to that. And it's it's also reinforced it because it's also worked Yeah. in that, you know, I know our, our initial conversations with our original marketing team were almost comical because they say, well, you can't say that. Like, you can't be that honest because and, and we've just like pushed through that and been committed to like just seeking truth in whatever form it, it it, it comes for answering the questions that we have, that our providers have, and trying to just keep pushing people to the best analytical solutions, the best clinical solutions in terms of the types of treatments uh, that do and don't solve, you know, the problems that they're trying to trying to solve. Yeah. Well, you've made it easy, and thanks for setting me up so well to talk about something that we're going to be talking about a lot this year, and you're going to hear about it a lot this year, which is Dutch trust. Yep. We need a hashtag for that. Yep. Hashtag Dutch trust. Hashtag Easy. Dutch trust. Okay. Just, just made it. <laughs> so this is all about bringing data that's credible and really making sure that we are constantly yeah. questioning our methods and ourselves to make sure that what we're putting out there for practitioners is trustworthy. You yeah. know, so, you know, we see salivary hormone testing available in the marketplace, but I know from you and our lab, you know, assessment, the data there is really lacking to assure that it's trustworthy. There's not published data behind it. And, you know, for a lot of the results, especially people on hormone replacement, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? right? So, I mean, I think it's like that commitment to looking at peer-reviewed data to drive decision-making for the business, right. you know? Kind of the second leg of the stool that I have seen over and over again is like, what types of analytes will report on? You know, when I look at oats in the marketplace, this is a great example. There's oat panels that are so broad, so broad. I've been looking at them and some of them have, you know, 100 markers, maybe even more. And I, you know, we only report on a couple of them. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Yeah, I mean, we're just looking to leverage what's useful and laid out in the literature. So when you talk about saliva, for example, it's, I think, almost everyone here would agree that it's laid out really well in the literature that it does really well for cortisol, that there's an advantage to measuring cortisol in saliva, which is why we have our Dutch plus, and we can do that in urine or in saliva. Um, but then, as you mentioned, when you move into the sex hormones, then there are some limitations where we have better solutions. Uh, when you look at the organic acids, they're an interesting mix uh, in that one, we're trying to look at analytes that fold into the story we're trying to tell, which is a hormone story. But then there's a deeper issue of you know, some of these markers where you might have a hypothetical or a theoretical connection between, you know, when this thing is elevated or low, it may indicate that you have a certain problem. Um, because on a biochemical pathway, you can sort of draw some arrows and some things and say, aha, this, this makes sense uh, conceptually. Um, but if those are provable claims, then we need to either go into the literature and find that it's been established and then validate our own version of that test. And then we can bring it to market or 
it isn't established in the literature, and then we have a choice to make, which is either to ignore it or to do the work ourselves to bring that data to light. Um, so for us, we've done that a lot with HRT monitoring, that there hasn't been a lot of evidence in the literature for either saliva or urine testing to really add to the serum story for monitoring HRT. Um, and that's something that we've, you know, over the last couple of years have really brought to to bear in the literature is showing that the type of data that you expect to see if this is going to work successfully in someone's clinic, that we can show that. Yeah. Uh, and for the organic acids, you know, it's a mix of some that have been really well established in the literature, some that are a little thinner, and then some that where there's just a complete void of actual peer-reviewed data that would suggest that this hypothetical connection actually plays out in real life before we go saying this is a marker for deficiency of such and such, and someone goes and spends their money and thinks it's going to solve their problem, you know, there's some interrogation that needs to be done of, of the literature or, you know, to do the work yourself to see if there actually is a parallel between a marker, a biomarker for something being, you know, off and that actual conclusion that you're trying to draw. Yeah. Like, is it actually clinically relevant? You have a high bar for that, where if you're going to report on it, you want to make sure that clinicians can really trust that it's truly clinically relevant. And that's not, we're not just guessing based upon theory. Right. And then yeah. the, the other category too, is there with the hormones, there are zillions of metabolites. It seems that you can, that you can measure. And, you know, there is, I think somewhat of a, a temptation to be a, you know, everything but the kitchen sink sort of approach to say, Hey, look at all the things that we can measure. But again, if those, if those markers mm -hmm. aren't leverageable for something clinical, um, then, you know, we want to go in a different direction. And, and we've learned from that ourselves of some of the things that we offered initially, which had this conceptual advantage. And then when we really interrogated it and put it to the test, um, that it really didn't, didn't live up to the standards that we set and, and stripping that away, um, you know, is painful in the moment, but then to have an entire panel where you can have, you know, trust in the conclusions that you can draw from those, um, is, is really, really important. Yeah. Now, another differentiator that I want to call out when we talk about Dutch trust is like the commitment to peer review, which I think mm -hmm. is really rare in the integrative medicine world that, you know, it's one thing to kind of talk about what you see in your own data, but it's another thing to hold it up against someone who is probably pretty skeptical, you know, in the general medical community. When you have peer reviewers, they're not accustomed to urine testing. They know it's in the integrative medicine space. They look at it with a grain of salt. So it's a high bar to overcome, but it's really important, you know, that that literature is getting published. I love that there's that commitment there. And this is the really fun stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you, to your point, you can hear the attitude in some of the reviewers' comments <laughs> when they, they smell functional medicine and they yes. like pounce. Yes. Um, and so, and so you've got some work to do to say, listen, if our data either holds up or it doesn't. Um, and so it's a long, painful process to take that data and dig into it um, and to get it in a, in a form that answers the question that you're trying to ask, but mm -hmm. also is done in a way that these really skeptical uh, reviewers will eventually sign off on so that you can get what you're doing in the peer-reviewed literature. Because I think functional medicine, it's tempting, you know, in the, a lot of the stuff that's really innovative around here in, um, in the A-forum space um, sometimes you get out ahead of the curve and if you get out of the curve with a winning idea, then you build up this amount of business on claims that are provable that maybe you haven't yet proven. And so to take this growing business and to slow down enough to say, okay, we really need to continue to add to this intellectual foundation 
that we're trying to build off of instead of just focusing on growing the business has been something that we've been uh, really committed to. And it's, it's a little bit painful because it's a slow process and it takes, uh, you know, we have a whole team of people that are digging into data. You need your biostatistician and you need, you know, your scientific writer. Um, and, and that team um, is just busy moving along. And we've had, you know, multiple things published each of the last few years and it just continues to build that case. Um, and like I said, the answer is not always positive. There are things, you know, when we started this random example, but we promoted our test for monitoring of vaginal progesterone. And that was just one little example where we thought, okay, we win here, we win here, we win here, because hypothetically and theoretically it works. But then there was something that we learned there that, you know what, that data doesn't actually represent uh, what we want to the strength that we need. And so that fell down a wrong and we say, yo, there actually are better solutions, if at all you wanna test in that given situation. Um, and so we continue to learn and, and most of the things are affirming what we're doing. And then when we learn something that isn't affirming, then it seems like a loss, but it really is a win for the end user because we're giving you confidence in, in the direction you do wanna use the testing that we're giving. And then again, helping people find better solutions for the few areas where we aren't you know, the best answer to a particular question. Yeah, well that team's been really successful. I mean, we've had posters published at NAMS, at ASRM, like very conventional right. organizations that are excited to see the work that we're doing. And I think it's been for several years now. So there's a little bit of a reputation there right. in a positive way, which yeah. is great. And we just had another paper accepted that's available online now in steroids. I want to share a little bit about that because we've had two papers published in steroids that look at estrogen patches and estrogen gels. Right. Can you talk a little bit about like what that was and why is it so impactful for our community? Sure. Well, I think it, it is a, that category of the thing that we're saying, we believe this to be true. But then when you go to the literature, you're connecting the dots a little bit here and there, but there really is, there isn't that evidence that you need to see. Um, and with the patches, estrogen patches and gels um, kind of go hand in hand, but in a way that's really informative to this this body here at A4M because the, the predominant view is that urine testing is not actually able to monitor creams and gels. And we have the data that says, yes, like we not only see the trends that you expect to see, but we see the levels that you would expect given the clinical data that's available for those products. And that's been a really, really confusing topic for this industry um, that we've tried to speak into and then, and then bolster that with the data um, that says, yes, if you overlay our results with the clinical data that's available for these estrogen patches and estrogen gels, there's there's a correlation. Um, with things a, like bone loss, like bone mineral symptoms, density like you know, for estrogen, vaginal atrophy yeah. and, and hot flashes where you see, you know, our results creeping up out of that postmenopausal range is the level at which those products work, but just barely. Mm -hmm. And then as you go to creep like a little bit closer to that luteal range, you start to see more bone mineral density and, and stronger uh, relieving, relieving of symptoms relative to placebo for, for those things. So that correlation of data is really important to affirm that, yes, this is a tool that you can use here. And then when you dig in further, what you see is that there's a significant advantage in those particular situations over serum testing, which for an estrogen gel is going to move too fast throughout the day to have a really trustworthy number or a saliva value, which is really not in the range that makes sense in terms of correlating with the clinical symptoms. And again, there's been so much confusion about that. And so we continue to A, provide the data and then educate 
um, so that people are you know better armed with information for dosing, but then also the tool to follow up because it's still individual, right? Mm -hmm. You and I take the same medication. Um, if I was to find need for an estrogen patch, um, <laughs> you know, individuals respond differently, and that's the whole purpose of functional endocrinology tools is to characterize you well as it relates to your status of that hormone. And then of course, the reason we chose urine testing on top of that is then there's that additional layer of information of, well, what's your body doing with it? Yeah, we get, we got the dose right, but if you're making too much 4-hydroxy, you're not methylating, you know, all of those things um, that we can build this more complete story um, to help your patients. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's so cool at Dutch is we have so much data from running, you know, tens of thousands of patients at this point that there is a wealth of findings to be extracted and shared. So there's so much more to come on the research front, and it's something that is part of the Dutch story for the next 10 years as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we're excited to dig in even further. Yeah, well, thank you, Mark and Dr. Jones, for joining us on this episode of the 10 Days of Dutch live from Vegas. Stay tuned. Until next time. <laughs>